Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Larry McCann. Oh, pardon me. I didn't see you there, and I still don't. This is a podcast. If you're following my train of thought, nod your head. See, you're doing it again. If you want me to be aware of your feedback, you'll have to email me. LarryMcCannum at gmail.com That's Larry, M-A-C-C-A-N-N-U-M at gmail.com Like the kids do, I want to give a special shout out to the two iTunes reviews. Not only because they were both five stars, I truly appreciate the effort and the feedback. If you enjoyed the show, please encourage others to check it out. If you don't enjoy the show, I want you to visualize the gesture my hand is making right now. I'll give you a hint. It involves a solitary finger. If you need a bigger clue than that, you might be dumber than you look. That was a little harsh, Larry. Aren't you afraid that's going to inspire people to write really negative reviews? As they say in the biz, all publicity is good publicity. Unless, of course, you're caught up in one of these Harvey Weinstein-like scandals. That is not good publicity. But right now, let's move on to our main story. Part 4 of Sexual Assaults on College Campuses. Which I promise I'm wrapping up this episode. Thank you again for your patience. Professor Koss has deeply scrutinized the work of Dr. David Lissack, a psychologist and former University of Massachusetts Boston professor who released a 2002 study, Repeat Rape and Multiple Offending Among Undetected Rapists, persuaded advocates, policymakers, and even the White House that most campus rapists are serial predators. And that seems to connect to Michael Dolce's and other victim rights advocates' perception that You've got to have this zero-tolerance approach, or these aggressors are just going to keep committing the same crimes. Now, I think it's important to bring to your attention that both Lissick and Dolce were sexually abused as children, not by family members. And while I fully recognize the trauma and impact such an event can have in shaping who you are as a person, I can't help but feel that it is also influencing their approach to policy. We need to listen to victims and give them our utmost support. But when victims of childhood sexual assault are seeming to apply their experience to the very different world of sexual assault on college campuses, especially situations perpetrated by students against other students, I think we need to make a clear distinction between that and adolescent sexual assault. Again, not that they shouldn't be able to express their opinions or share their own experiences, which I commend them for. I just don't think it applies nearly as much as they seem to think it does on a college campus. In another article, also on Reason.com, written by Linda LeFauve, LeFauve, at will, you can correct me on that pronunciation if you want, you Frenchie. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Linda writes, the federal government universities, and members of Congress have all used Lissac's theories to justify rape adjudication policies that are biased against accused students. They should reconsider those policies in light of new discoveries about the inapplicability of Lissac's work. 
His authority on the subject is so uncontested that even critics of draconian anti-rape policies feel obligated to grapple with his assertions. One example is Slate's Emily Yaffe, who described Lissack's work as foundational in the movement to curb campus sexual assault. In January of 2014, President Obama's memo announced the creation of a White House task force to address campus sexual assault and repeatedly cites Lissack. According to the memo, campus rapists are often serial predators who perpetrate a cycle of violence unless stopped. And this is again consistent with both Mr. Dolce's comments and the premise of Lissack's research. The problem arises when you get into what research was Lissack and his co-authors operating off of. James Hopper, a former UMass Boston student under Lissack, described the survey respondents as working-class, first-generation college students who didn't live on campus. He's quoted as saying, this is not a typical college sample. In Linda's article, Koss is quoted as saying, it's one of the most egregious examples with an inadequate scientific basis that lives on because it offers a simplistic solution. In a conversation with Linda, Lissack admitted that the surveys he used weren't designed to study campus sexual assault. They were instead primarily based on domestic violence situations. And during a presentation at Emory University in 2013, he also said that UMass Boston was demographically different than a traditional four-year college. And while Lissack interviewed 15 students who had committed sexual assault during his graduate studies at Duke University in the 80s, he also misconstrued that he continued to do that for the 2002 study. He was claiming to have used some special insight into the minds of serial campus rapists that would allow him to make claims beyond the scope of both his research and the small sample size he was drawing from. Linda writes that much of the urgency around the topic of sexual assault on college campuses traces back to Lissac's repeated claim that campus offenders are violent sociopaths who use sophisticated strategies to groom their targets and terrify and coerce their victims into submission. Lissac asserts that 90% of campus rapes are committed by serial offenders who average six rapes each. He has said that every report should be viewed and treated as an opportunity to identify a serial rapist. That assertion mirrors the description of a pedophile or child abuser and I think has very little relevance for the environment of a frat party or a college campus. I don't doubt that there are sexual predators in those situations, but I deeply question whether we should focus on a statistical boogeyman, 5% or less, when we seem to have a far more widespread problem on our hands. Just looking at the context of college sports, as I mentioned in a prior episode, on a rivalry game day, the risk of sexual assault goes up 80%. In his published work, Repeat Rape and Multiple Offending Among Undetected Rapists, he led people to believe that he conducted the research himself. As Linda writes, he did not. The paper was based on pooled data from four studies conducted by others on his campus between 1991 and 1998. When Linda spoke with Lissac in March of 2014, he first said he was unable to remember their topics, then said that, quote, they may have been about child abuse history or relationships with parents. Linda asked whether they were about college sexual assault, and he conceded they were not. 
When asked about who the investigators of those previous studies were, he again said he was unable to recall, but when prompted, acknowledged his co-author, Paul Miller, as the lead investigator of two of them, conducted while Miller was a master's and then doctoral student at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Linda asked if the others were also Lassac's doctoral students during that time, and he responded with, yes, probably. Among that pooled data, there were 1,882 subjects, men ranging in age from 18 to 71. Linda writes, assuming they reflected the demographics of the university, most would have been part-time students, many of whom would also be holding down jobs away from campus. All would have been commuters. And just there, that does not reflect a lot of the data that I've already presented and that is used in these articles or papers. If you're a full-time young student, you do not fit this profile whatsoever. Among those 1,882 men, 120 had engaged in actions that met the legal definition of rape or attempted rape. This poll was conducted through an anonymous survey. Lussac referred to all 1,882 as rapists. And out of the 120 that were rapists, only 76 met Lussac's definition of multiple offenders. During a back and forth with Linda, Lussac told her that he had interviewed most of these subjects. Linda responds, that was a surprising claim. Given the conditions of the survey, it was anonymous, and the fact that he was looking at the data produced long after his students had completed those dissertations. Nor were there plausible circumstances under which a faculty member supervising a dissertation would interact directly with the subjects. Linda wrote, When I asked how he was able to speak with men participating in an anonymous survey for research he was not conducting, he ended the phone call. That stat he throws out that 90% of campus rapes are committed by serial offenders and they average about six rapes each were based off of that total of 76 non-traditional students who were not living on a college campus and whose offenses may or may not have happened on or near a college campus, may or may not have been perpetrated on other students, and may have happened at any time in the survey respondents' adult lives. I think Professor Mary Koss has a very strong argument here. If Lissac's paper is affecting policy, this is a real problem. Linda continues by writing, Lissac has called for draconian action against students accused of sexual assault. He's quoted as saying, These men, undetected rapists, and serial sexual predators cannot be reached or educated. They must be identified and removed from our communities. Because they're undetected, they will obviously continue a relentless pursuit of victims. Linda writes that none of the men in his paper had been charged with sexual assault has never been established. In fact, as he stated in his paper, in order to avoid evoking defensive reactions in participants, the survey specifically did not ask that question. Rather, overwhelming evidence of the hidden nature of subjects' criminal activity is offered via separate studies which found incarcerated serial rapists committed more assaults than they'd been charged with by police. So again, Lassac is using the confessions of convicted rapists as evidence for something that relates to college campus sexual assaults. He's misconstruing evidence and using it to justify his own agenda. Here's where Linda really leans in. There is, in fact, no foundation for the connection between Lassac's paper and higher education. 
This point cannot be emphasized enough. Nothing about the studies from which he repurposed data depended on survey respondents being students or acts they reported taking place while in college. Nothing in the research protocol indicates prospective respondents were even asked whether they were students when they agreed to complete very personal surveys in exchange for $3. There is not a single statement in the paper about assaults taking place on or near a campus. There is not a single reference to the campus environment. And this is the study we use to justify sweeping changes in our approach to deal with these situations. That's a big problem. Think of the vested interest here. College sports is big business. Alcohol, also big business. I can see why politicians would not want to get on the wrong side of either of those powerful lobbies. In a Huffington Post article written by Tyler Kincaid, Dr. Lassac addresses some of these accusations on his research. In the 2002 study, we reported the acts of perpetration against adults and children separately. The oft-quoted statistics that 63% of the rapists in the 2002 study were serial offenders and that 91% of the rapes were perpetrated by those serial offenders all referred to adult-on-adult -adult sexual violence. I have never said that I interviewed all of the rapists in the 2002 study. That study combined several data sets from several different years. I interviewed some rapists from some of those data sets. In an earlier study conducted at another university, I interviewed all of the rapists. He's kind of skirting this issue. He doesn't say that all of these took place on campus or were perpetrated by students. It's especially vague when he leaves it as adult-on-adult -adult sexual violence. There's also a bit of a logical inconsistency. According to the National Institute of Justice, 85-90% to 90 of sexual assaults reported by college women were perpetrated by someone they know. If 91% of all rapes are perpetrated by serial offenders, you're telling me that 85-90% to 90 of women know this master criminal serial rapist that is plaguing their campus? That doesn't sound all that plausible to me. In another article, also by uh, Robbie Suave for Reason.com, I do think it's important to point out that Reason.com is a libertarian website, so they may have some bias and may be skewed towards that. Suave writes in this article that, according to Koss, Hopper, another PhD who was involved with the original paper published by Dr. Lassac, Hopper identified some minor errors in coding within the data, which the paper's author, were able to correct before the article was published by J.A.M.A. Koss is then quoted directly as saying, the effect of these corrections on the results was it made it stronger in opposition to the serial rape hypothesis. But as Suave writes, Hopper and Lassac insisted the paper's conclusion was wrong and wrote a letter to J.A.M.A. not simply accusing Swartout, Koss, and the co-authors of being wrong, but of systematically suppressing the number of serial offenders. Swartout and Koss's team reran their statistical models and ultimately satisfied JAMA that the paper was sound and its conclusions logical. That organization declined to publish Hopper and Lassac's concerns. And you may be asking, what are those concerns? 
Larry's here to help you out. In a paper I can't really recommend reading because it's extremely dense and honestly comes across as a bit personally motivated and not very well thought out. Dr. Hopper, again a co-author of Lissac's initial paper, starts quibbling about the definition of serial rapists, which does tie into the theme of this podcast. I do think both sides need to have a clear definition of that. Otherwise, any argument or discussion is going to be built upon a shaky foundation. I think they settle on something like five rapes constitutes a serial rapist, but they were unable to reach any consensus on what kind of time frame that would relate to. Dr. Hopper questions things like an error in time points. Apparently, they used five instead of four, and that changed some of the data and the trajectory of likeliness to offend. And Dr. Hopper really leans into Dr. Rosenberg's claim that in terms of whether or not they're serial rapists, you only need a two-class model, whereas Sword Out Koss and their team had a three-class model. Data models are the scope of parameters of the specific research. So, relevant to this story... This is quoted from Dr. Hopper's article. One would expect two discrete trajectory patterns. A small group of men, 4% to 5%, who are likely to rape consistently, and a larger group who are not likely to rape at all. Dr. Hopper continues, Dr. Rosenberg pointed out the major problems with the analysis in the paper. Indeed, problems so severe that only a retraction can suffice to correct the scientific record parentheses, and hopefully stop Dr. Swartout and his colleagues from continuing to mislead journalists, the public, and policymakers. Oh, you mean like you and Dr. Lissack have done? Interesting. Dr. Swartout responds to those allegations by saying, we chose, and I think that the three-class structure fit, because I think the model fit indices. I agree with you that the two-class indices look good as well. I think we learn a lot more from the three-class model, I think actually looking at the trajectory pattern and seeing that third trajectory really educates us on the pattern of sex of rape perpetration across time. Just looking at the numbers of men who report perpetrating rape before college doesn't really report perpetrating rape in college. And I think this sums up this whole argument well. Dr. Hopper and Lissak seem unable to comprehend any nuance. You're either a serial rapist or you're not a rapist. They have no interest in determining exactly what's happening on college campuses, which is why they have no business discussing that issue. Dr. Hopper then concludes with a really salty statement. As of the date on this document, November 1st, 2017, it has been 16 months since the GSU committee provided Dr. Swartout with its report and its recommendation that he and his co-authors rectify any remaining errors in the interest of the scientific record. Yet the paper still has not been retracted or corrected any further, and Dr. Swartout and his co-authors continue to portray and promote it as valid science to the media, most recently to the New York Times. So after this whole JMA situation, which reviewed Swartout and Koss's paper thoroughly, Lissac and Hopper did not let it go. They then pushed for another peer review from GSU and are very upset about it. I do try to be open to other perspectives on this podcast. So one thing that's important to me is trying to express different viewpoints and perspectives. In the past episode, I drew upon an article from the Christian Science Monitor, which is honestly something that I would not read in my own time. Before I cite an article that was on Honey Badger Brigade, I think it's important to understand the context. 
Much like how Reason.com, the articles that Suave and Lefeuve wrote for as Libertarian, the Honey Badger Brigade operates off of these principles. We all came together because of a mutual interest in men's issues, which can be observed in most of our work. We touch on women's issues as well, but we do not shy away from critiquing feminine vices. The main women's issue we grapple with is how the politicizing of female victimhood through misleading or outright false statistics traps women in an emotionally abusive web of punditry and public manipulation. This is the website's operating principle, and I think you need to keep that in mind. Under the pseudonym, Yet Another Commentator, all one word, there's an article titled, The Consequences of Discrediting the Lissac Rape Theory. At one point in the article, the author does state, under no circumstances should this be interpreted as a desire to preserve a demonstrably disproven theory. If Lissac's work is indeed worthless, then it should be discarded. And I hope they have the integrity to hold themselves to this. But this article is primarily critical of Suave and Lefeuve's work on Reason.com. It cites things like, When the Rape and Incest National Network, Rain with Two Ends, provided a report to the White House on how to deal with rape on campus, they wrote that, Rape is not caused by cultural factors, but by the conscious decisions of a small percentage of the community to commit a violent act. In this statement, they gave voice to the Lissac theory of rape. And as I pointed out, that is a shaky principle. Not only is it illogical in my mind, the evidence does not support it. I think the idea that there's a small number of extremely sophisticated predators is both naive and a way to justify not creating sweeping changes, merely looking for scapegoats. If it's not a systemic problem, it's just a problem with the outliers, then we just need to find those outliers and then everyone will sleep well. Instead of focusing on outliers, I think we should be calling outliers. Dr. Lissack and Hopper, you have a lot to answer for. The article on Honey Badger continues, clearly feminism incorporated, lobby groups, diversity trainers, celebrity feminists on the speaking tour circuit, feminist academics, etc., wants to get rid of the Lissack theory for good. They don't like the idea that rapists are some aberrant, abnormal, bizarre deviation from the norm. To them, rapists are just the norm applied consistently. And then the author goes on and on about how Dr. Mary Koss believes that rape is a cultural phenomenon, that our society is molding men to be more likely to rape, which I think is true. The degree to which that is true is up for debate, but I think that concept is very sound. The author concludes with, Nature abhors a vacuum, and intellectuals hate theoretical vacuums, i.e. the absence of an explanation. If the Lissac theory gets thrown out, the cost theory can be reasonably expected to undergo a resurgence. This is where the author's losing me. Again, we're falling into a binary. It doesn't have to be cost or Lissac. You're not stuck with only two options, an A or a B. I think cost has proven to be an actual scientist and an academic who will actually do research which is encouraging, but that isn't to say she should be the only model that we make decisions off of. Like I've proposed over the course of the past three to four episodes, there are many different approaches, and all of them will have shortcomings and advantages. When you use them in conjunction, I think we can create a really good system, one that positively affects life on college campuses and protects everyone, not a specific group. Because as we've learned, women are especially at risk, but so are transgender people, so are poor people, and so are even members of fraternities. 
I can't underscore enough how we have to look at what's motivating people. And I find it especially strange that a website like Honey Badger Brigade will really make it clear they're not a fan of Koss when she's doing work to actually protect the accused and not create this draconian system where they're thrown under the bus and in all honesty, lose their civil rights for a fair trial. When evidence goes from beyond a reasonable doubt to more likely than not, you're greatly skewing the power. And as a, just a personal stance, I think that gender issues have been so bad for so long, and I've said this before, I'm willing to be on the wrong side of an allegation and suffer the consequences if positive change will happen down the line. I don't think that's the best case, but if push comes to shove, I would rather more aggressors be targeted and a few innocent people get caught up in that maelstrom than more aggressors getting away with it. Again, that's not ideal, but if I'm forced to choose this A or a B, which everyone seems obsessed with, that's where I stand. As I said at the top, we're done with the story. We made it. Thank you again for your patience. Let's cut to the interview with Chelsea Newman. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, thank you. How are you? I'm wonderful. Can you please introduce yourself? My name is Chelsea Newman. I am a visual effects artist, and I play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. Fascinating. I want to know more about that. I will admit, I have a bit of a prejudice against D&D. I, I think that's an abbreviation, correct? Yes, D&D stands for Dungeons & Dragons basically just communal storytelling. Everyone makes a character and act out your wildest fantasies, pretty much. That's not a great way to put it. <laughs> I'll give you another opportunity. Don't, don't worry too much about it. But before we get into that, tell me a bit about yourself. Okay. I'm originally from the East Coast, Connecticut, and I went to school for computer graphics and visual effects and such. And in LA, working freelance at different studios every now and then. Basically just trying to help create visual effects for animated movies and film. Is the special genre or film that especially inspires you something that's a dream to work on? I eventually want to work on major fully CG children's movies. Ideally one that has good morals. I want to work on something that can actually make a difference and introduce kids to good things, good thought process, and maybe not as much toxic thought processes or behaviors that you see in a lot of shows nowadays. That's fantastic. I'm glad we have you on the show because <laughs> that's very much what we're trying to accomplish here. Yeah. Where I think we often underestimate how media can influence, especially children. It definitely can. There are several children's shows like Caillou, <laughs> where it's just like, hello, whiny, whiny little kid. And it's like, <laughs> I, I don't think that's a great show you should be showing your kids. You don't want to teach them to throw temper tantrums. You should teach them to share. You should teach them to treat others the way you want to be treated. Things like that. And introduce children at younger ages, uh, things that maybe are considered controversial now, but eventually will be part of the norm and just introduce it to them so that not weird. 
topics such as people who are gay, people who are trans, people who are biracial. Show it as normal. Don't show it as something completely different. I want it to get to a point where it doesn't need to be a big deal when things like that show up in media. Nowadays, anytime there's a gay character, everyone's like, oh, it's so progressive. They've got a gay character. And then sometimes it's like, that's not a great representation of what a gay character should be. <laughs> things like that. I totally agree. It's wonderful that you're saying that. Children especially seem much more accepting than adults a lot of the time. Yeah. And they seem to learn to stereotype, to have prejudice. They pick it up from somewhere, but it doesn't seem ingrained in them. Most racism and prejudice is learned either from TV and media and from their parents. As a young adult working and getting ready to help build the next generation, we very much need to... I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> I get Will to edit this, so feel free to express your thoughts however you'd like. It's his job to try to make them a little more concise, but believe me, he's not going to change the meaning. He's okay. going to keep the heart of what you're trying to say at the core. Yeah, Will's great. <laughs> uh, debatable. I don't know about that guy. Uh, he gets a little iffy. Uh, I see what you mean. Back with the children's media and such, all the traits that are learned from that, if we can just educate people. In my experience, I found you never want to go into a conversation expecting to change someone's mind. What you want to do is educate them on facts and make them aware of things they may not have considered before and just give them something to think about because you can't change someone's mind. They're the only ones who can do that. That's wonderful. I think that's a very healthy mentality. One question I'd like to ask you is, I think most people, if they want to influence children, they might become a teacher. They might become an elementary school teacher. You seem to be approaching this from the media perspective. Why do you think that is a direction that appeals to you more? I found media growing up, I found it to be a lot more influential to me than school was. I was a good student, and my mother actually is an elementary school teacher, so I am aware of how much that affects. There are several things about education and teachers in general that I would like to see fixed and different thoughts like that. But I feel like in media, children would be more interested in it. School generally, after a while, it feels like you have to go. Well, let's just take a break, watch a show. If the show can be something that opens your mind to something new or something you can learn from, I think those lessons will stick more. I mean, I don't know if it's changed. There might be difference depending on different schools and such, but uh, there's, <laughs> I hear the cat. They're always making some noise. Always something to say. I love the cats. <laughs> There's no behavioral learning in schools as of now. Schools very much are still focused on like science, social studies, math, and English. I go back and forth on whether or not all those should be mandatory requirements. I personally feel like a lot of those core subjects should be more electives instead of the core classes. If it's something that you're interested in, you should definitely take it and learn more. I absolutely loved math while I was in school. I took extra math classes. I wanted to take art, but there wasn't as many art electives, so I wasn't able to take an art class until I was a senior in high school. That's very unfortunate. So most of my electives were math <laughs> and community service because I did that. <laughs> hey, that, that's wonderful as well. At least from my perspective... I question whether schools preparing our children for the adult world. Yeah. 
speaking as someone who jumped into the adult world earlier than most people do, I graduated high school at 17 and got my bachelor's degree in two years as opposed to four and then moved to LA to start working. I can speak out of experience and say a lot of the stuff that you need to know as an adult was not taught in school. How to write a check. I had one class on that when I was in fourth grade, I think. That seems a little bit early. Well, I think it was a great way to manage your points and then you got your tickets to get prizes at the end of each month and you could buy different stuff with the money that you got from good behavior. That's true. If that's not reinforced in future years, by the time you're out of college, or even in college, because I had to actually rent an apartment because my college didn't have dorms, I had to relearn how to write a check. (laughs) I feel the same way about basic taxes. If we're learning calculus in high school, why aren't we taking finance? Yep. I feel like that should be a core class that you take in high school, for sure. (laughs) I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I did taxes for the first time last year because I finally made enough money that I had to. And I was like, I have no idea where to start. I don't think (laughs) most people do. They just hand it off to someone else. And well, I trust you. Yeah. So that's definitely what I think should be a core class. I also feel that with history and such, currently, I feel like it's a lot of pick and choose what we want to teach. And they're getting farther and farther away from actual history. I think in some history books now, they're not even talking about slavery and they're getting rid of that, trying to make the quote unquote white man seem like the hero and everything. And it's like, that's not the case. But I also found that when I was taking history in school, it was my least favorite class because I would have different opinions on things and my answers were marked incorrect. It is kind of a strange idea to be like, this is what happened. And not take into account whose perspective that is, Mm -hmm. or even acknowledging that this is the United States of America's perspective on this war. Because it's going to be very different from the opposite side. History is written by the victors. I think everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Those history books, they may not say what was necessarily the truth. If you don't look into things yourself afterwards, which I like to do, you can sometimes find different information and and then it's always like gotta check your sources don't just find an article on wikipedia and be like oh so that's what happened now what happened in the books like no check that source see where that came from i find that to be a much better way to learn and i find it much more fascinating that way again that's wonderful i think if more people had that mentality not to just question everything but to look at it in a healthy way don't just assume Some fact is a fact. You might want to do a little more legwork. Mm -hmm. I know it can be extra work, but it does ensure that you're not just spouting off some fake news, basically. Yep. I don't necessarily like to say I question everything. I like to say that I have an open mind. You may take something to be truth, but then learn later there was a fact that you were missing. So you just want to be open to learning something new. That's a more positive way of looking at it. I'm a bit of a cynic. I, I'm a <laughs> negative person. I, what can I say? I tend to talk about how the glass is half empty. That's just, that's me. Maybe it's where I grew up, but I can't say for sure. I have engineering friends who say the glass is twice as big as it needs to be, so. And there you go, a third option. <laughs> Gotta think outside the box. A hundred percent. And I think currently in our society, it seems like everything is A or B, black mm-hmm. or white. Are you... You're causing trouble now. I I was patient. I'll pet you. 
There you go. You happy now? You're the center of attention. They can't even see you, and you're not making any noise. What was this one's name again? That's Meridian. Okay. But you can call it Jerkface. Okay. You have my permission. <laughs> I probably should have had Will feed them before starting this interview. We may be in for a, a vocalization lesson. <laughs> we'll be picking up on Cat. Uh, one thing I, I did want to hear from you. Do you have any favorite children movies or TV shows? The original Teen Titans... That was actually the show that first got me interested in animation and actually set me on my path. I was absolutely in love with it. Avatar The Last Airbender was always fun. Legend of Korra was just as good. Growing up, I also was a huge fan of anime. Not just because Japanese cartoons, I just, I found that anime much more often would have different morals and such within the show. After finishing an anime, I always felt like I learned something from it or had a different perspective. I think that's another reason why I love Dungeons & Dragons so much is I love having a character and looking at things from a different point of view. It's just one of the ways I like to keep an open mind. What are some other good shows, though? I loved Moana. <laughs> Moana was good. I know Frozen has been controversial because of the uh, popularity that it got, but... I think we're slowly making steps in the right direction with female protagonists and shows, especially with Moana. I love the fact that there wasn't a love interest at all. <laughs> I don't think love interests are necessary in a lot of shows. I got really mad at the Avengers movie where the Black Widow and Hulk became a thing. I was just like, do you have no idea how to give character progression to Black Widow except by putting her in a romance? Hollywood seems they're, they're making an effort, but they're still pretty far behind. And I think it might largely be due to the fact that most writers are men. Yep. They're projecting that male perspective on everything. They've got the male perspective. And then the times when they are trying to write outside the box, have different types of characters. Again, you're having the white writers, <laughs> white, cis, straight males <laughs> writing on topics that they may not necessarily understand. And sometimes it'll come across as racist or just not what they wanted. And the way to fix that is to get the actual diverse writers and be like, hey, is this a good representation? Don't write something and then have only your straight cis white male friends be like, yeah, that looks good. <laughs> it's totally inclusive. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that's can't great. agree more. I think that's great. I mean, it's like the gay character is very feminine, but I think that's a great representation. Not all gay men are super feminine. Some are, for sure. I think Modern Family was great, where the more feminine of the, I don't remember their names, I'm terrible at names, but it was the more feminine of the two that actually was super into football. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. It's not something you see. So it's like you're thinking outside the box, even among what could be considered stereotypes. And like you're saying, that's utterly important, whether mm -hmm. it's for children or adults. We need to see these things as normal. Diversity is not just something you have to do because of affirmative action. It should be something we all care about. Yeah, have the diverse characters and you don't always need to make a huge deal about them being diverse. They just be part of the cast. You have your main character and their friends and you don't need to be like, <laughs> got your token black friend, got your gay best friend, got things like that. It's like, no, you're just friends, <laughs> not tokens.
that's the world I want to see. And I hope I see it before the end of my life. I feel like it's constantly been two steps forward, one step back. I think you can tell I'm more than willing to soapbox about this (laughs) all day long. But I do think you have a fascinating perspective. Well, the first question I want to ask, this is something I ask all interview subjects. And I want to reinforce that it's your opinion. Don't feel like there's a correct answer. A core belief of this podcast is that we often use different terms, assuming the other person agrees to that definition. And I find it important to hear the other person's definition before assuming anything about what they mean about that term. And in this case, I'd like you in your own words to define feminism. So feminism to me is the belief that regardless of gender, everyone should be equal. (laughs) I'm very much on the mind that everything is a spectrum. For me, it's not just male or female. There are people in between. There are people who are gender fluid. There are people who feel like being very feminine one day and then more masculine the next. When I say feminine and masculine, that's very much like societal expectations that people have. So feminism for me is like, regardless of how you portray yourself, who you are, how you were born, same pay for the same job kind of thing. It shouldn't matter what gender you are. I love that definition. That's fantastic. And I think it's safe to assume you consider yourself a feminist by that definition, right? Yes. Good. <laughs> it would be a little awkward if you said all that and you're like, no, no, no. I, I think. It's so- like, no, that's for other people. That's just how I feel about it. Right, right. <laughs> no, I definitely consider myself a feminist. Sometimes I have problems interacting with different people within that community because I don't like the whole hate on men kind of aspect. People are different. You can't hate on everyone. That's something I've been dealing with to some degree as well. I recognize that the show can be seen as problematic to some people. They're just never going to be on board. I do want to say that I am aware that I'm a white cisgender heterosexual male. And I do want to state that I'm not trying to be the center of this. I'm not trying to say, hey, I've got the solution. All you women, just listen to me. I'll solve sexism. That is really not the point of this. No, and honestly, when I listened to the podcast when you invited me on, I thought it was great that you and Will were using your platform as straight white males to make a platform for women to speak. Honestly, I think the comedy aspect of it is great. It's like, listen, these two guys talk about feminism, but then you have people on the show who do know what they're talking about. I'm sure you know what you're talking about, too. I didn't mean like... Uh, To some degree. You're very generous. (laughs) To some degree. Uh, But yeah, basically, it's like you're having people on the show and just trying to understand like what I was saying about having an open mind. That's very much what this show seems to be. And I love that. Thank you. You're you're very generous again. And that is absolutely a focus of the show where, like you're saying, learning from other perspectives seems to be extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. You'll see things from different angles. Maybe something you assumed was only possible to interpret one way can suddenly have all this nuance. And I love what you said about a spectrum. I think every aspect of a life is a spectrum, Mm -hmm. but we like to pigeonhole it into two teams. And I just don't understand the drive for that. Yeah, kind of like what you're saying is see everything is black and white, male, female, gay, straight. There's a spectrum. There are things in between. It's also fluid. You don't need to identify in a specific place on the spectrum. It's okay to shift around. You should express yourself the way you want to. Speaking of expressing yourself, you met Will 
playing tabletop role-playing games at a local game store. Yes. Is he as big a jerk when he's role-playing as he is in real life? Uh, you have a very negative perspective on Will. I personally find him to be fantastic. <laughs> I have uh, not seen that quality in him. Maybe you're not spending as much time in a sweaty room with him. Probably not. <laughs> no, when I first met him, he was playing a Goliath Barbarian. Goliath Barbarian is very much stereotypical barbarian character. Big, strong. And then he multiclassed into wizard. It was a character choice I'd never seen before, and I absolutely loved it. And just that choice alone made me love the character, and um, will as a result. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you're going to have to explain some of those terms. Uh, barbarian isn't a word I know. I'm not especially sure how it falls into this context. Okay. Goliath, uh, it's a TV show. You, you totally lost me there. <laughs> But I think for our listeners, they may have an idea of what they think Dungeons and Dragons is. But I want to give you the opportunity to explain how you see it. Because okay. there may be details that they're just missing. Dungeons and Dragons, I touched on it a bit before. It's communal storytelling. So there's one person who runs the game. Some people will refer to him as the god of the game. I prefer to refer him as the referee. I find dice to be the actual gods. <laughs> But basically, there's either a story that the dungeon master has created or pre-written one, either written by the Adventures League or various other sources online. The dungeon master will tell the story, set up situations, and all the other players, there's usually between three and seven other players, they all create different characters. So you can be your regular human, you can also be different race, such as an elf, halfling, half-elf gnome, tiefling, then some more fun races, like the Goliath that I was mentioning, which is pretty much a half-giant mountain folk. You're curious about that. Something I like about D&D is it touches on racism in a different way than modern society. Sometimes you'll talk to people and it's like you'll be very against elves, because when you're reading about the races, you'll basically talk about the stereotypes for that race. <laughs> some of my favorite characters are ones that get away from that stereotype. It's always fun breaking out of the mold. That's um, fascinating. After you pick your race, you pick your class, whether you want to be a magic caster, a fighter, go around hitting things with your fists, such as a monk. And when you have all your classes put together, the dungeon master or game master, depending on what you're playing, will set up a scene just using his words to describe an area or a situation. You say what your character wants to do in that situation. And usually you will roll dice to see whether or not you succeed or fail in what you're going to do. I'm still a little confused, but thank you for that overview. I think I'm starting to get a sense of it. It seems like there's possibly a lot more flexibility and option than I might have assumed. There's a lot of option. Anyone who's first starting the game, I will usually recommend just put your options all in the main player's handbook. So there's not as many options as in some of the expanded content. And so it's a lot less overwhelming that way. If you don't have someone to help you with the whole character building process, you can find pre-generated characters online. So you don't have to worry about all the math. And then you can show up at a local game shop that plays Dungeons and Dragons and just hop into a table and play. I find most of the time the Dungeons and Dragons community is very welcoming.
you enjoyed part one of my interview with Chelsea Newman. In the next episode, we're going to jump right back into the interview with Chelsea and expand upon what this whole Dungeons and Dragons thing is all about. Chelsea will also share some of her experiences playing as a woman in a male-dominated game. I think we have just enough time for a new sponsor. Do you love gummy bears or worms, but are bored of eating the same kind of creature? Do you want to travel to Madagascar, but it's way too far? Do we have the product for you? I'm pleased to introduce Leaping Lemus Lemon Lime Lemurs. They're sour, sweet, sometimes subtly salty, and simply sumptuous. Who writes the copy for these things, Dr. Seuss? I didn't sign up for any tongue twisters. These do look really tasty, though, and they're oh so cute.